Director's Wall podcast, where we examine a filmmaker's body of work, film by film, formerly the M. Night Shift. <laughs> I'm your co-host, A.J. Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly. All right. And uh, we are starting a new filmmaker. We just got done watching every M. Night Shyamalan movie. And now we're starting Francis Ford Coppola's filmography. And this is going to be so exciting. I've been wanting to watch all of his movies for a long time. Because a lot of people praise, you know, like the big ones, like The Godfather. And then a lot of people just kind of brush him off post-apocalypse now and say, and then he just made garbage for the last 30-something years, you know. And I want to see if, if that's true. I don't believe that's true. I love Bram Stoker's Dracula. That was made in those supposed garbage years. I love that movie, too. That movie's great. And uh, and I feel like like we learned with going through the M Night movies is like you really when you watch it all as just like a big body work and go through it someone's entire sort of life projects you don't really think of it so as much as like this is the worst and this is the best and this is a good this is a bad one it's just like you get interesting things even out of the ones that don't work even the misfires even the movies that are maybe terrible are fascinating there is it is something interesting about it that's how you know like that's a real artistic filmmaker is when even their lesser films aka their bad films are still interesting to watch it's why i think scorsese is so good when he makes an off movie there's still something there and i still have to watch um shutter island shutter island (laughs) silence even yeah like you know brian de palma mission to mars a terrible movie, but very interesting because Brian De Palma made a big-budget science fiction action movie in the late 90s with a lot of CGI. Like, it makes you wish that like filmmakers like Woody Allen would get out of their comfort zone more often and do crazier things. Like, what does a Woody Allen $100 million action movie be like? It would be a total failure. It wouldn't work. But wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> Which is why 1941 is a very good movie, too. I have not seen that Spielberg. I have not seen Spielberg's lesser movies. What, you've never seen 1941? Never seen 1941 oh, or man. Always. Oh, so good. Or Empire of, Empire of the Sun. That's, they're all good. He's good. But anyways, we're not doing the Spielberg yeah. thing. We're doing Francis Ford Coppola. I really wanted to call this podcast a couple of guys talking about movies, <laughs> but I guess that that'll be the subject. That'll be the subject. Uh, and so we're going to go through every movie chronologically. We're going to do the movies he directed and the movies he was a screenwriter for. We will not be doing movies he just produced because that means we have to do an episode about Don Juan de Marco, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> Nobody wants to do Don that, Marco. Uh, but we're also going to pair a couple of wine with each episode which is very exciting to me because wine is good. So this week's wine is the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Red Label Zinfandel. Mm-hmm. We're drinking a 2015. And let's, let's read on the back what it says. It's a little story. All right. Dramatic style, vibrant packaging, and fruit-forward smooth wines are the signatures of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Zinfandel bestows supple tannins and lush jammy flavors of berries, cherries, and plums, along with spicy oak and notes of pepper and anise. Is that how you say it? Anise? Is that right? That licorice taste? Maybe. I don't want to say it how I think it's said. In other words, <laughs> I'm going to say anise. Enjoy with barbecued spare ribs 
or spicy lentil stew. See, they go with the meat eaters mm. and the vegetarians. That's very kind of them. Learn more about our wines at Francis Ford Coppola Winery. Dot com. I've been to, in San Francisco, you can go to the Coppola, like there's like a restaurant that also has their wine and food. And it's, I think it's the old Zoetrope office, I think. It's, that's what someone told me. I don't know if that's true. But they have all these big posters of his movies in there. And the, it's excellent food and good wine. And so definitely check that out. Yeah. I don't even know what it's called. It might even be called Zoetrope. I don't know. I should use Google one of these days and look these things up, I guess. Um, but today, we're starting with an interesting beginning. Uh, at a beginning that filmmakers would not have anymore. This is a this is a thing very specific to the time that these movies were made. AJ, do you want to explain sort of like we're doing we're covering three movies today. Why are we covering these three movies together, and what are these things? So we're covering three movies from that Coppola made or sort of made in the early '60s when he was uh, sort of finishing up at USC. Um, he is the director of these movies, but not really. <laughs> so two of these movies are foreign films that have been imported, redubbed into English, and then with scenes added into them. Those scenes are directed by Coppola. And, um, and then one film is purely his creation, well, him and someone else. And uh, filmmaker Jack Hill helped him with the extra footage. He was the cinematographer for uh, for the for uh, the first two movies, and he of course went on to direct great Pam Grier films and Spider Baby, and just you know a, a great filmmaker in his own right. Awesome. So um, what happened is uh, Coppola is at USC. He's making short films that are getting a lot of attention, and they catch the attention of investors in quotes the thing uh, the book i was reading wasn't too specific but they have mafia is that what that means yeah. if it, if investors in <clears throat> they've imported this german nudie film and they want him to redub it film some new scenes with nudity added in so they can show it at drive-in theaters and that movie bellboy and the playgirls yes Bellboy and the Playgirls, a.k.a. Mit Fing Die Sunday or Sunday on. You get a C- yeah. minus on your German exam. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he did that, and then they want him to make another nudie movie. Uh, so he wrote a script, but it was too, like, arty. And then that, so they didn't want it. And then he filmed it anyway, and then combined that with uh, another film, and that became Tonight for Sure. Then those two films got the attention of one legendary movie producer, Roger Corman, who then hired Coppola to just sort of be his jack-of-all-trades, including filming new scenes for movies that Corman had imported, and adding them in so he can play them at drive-ins. And that is the sci-fi film Battle Beyond the Sun. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the real Russian <laughs> title of that movie. Which movie should we talk about first? Uh, let's talk about Bellboy and the Playgirls first. So in my, my, this is my vote for the worst of the three. I think Bellboy and the Playgirls was the most abysmal of the three. Definitely. Because it feels like... It's definitely the one where his extra footage stands out the most. 
not just because the German movie's in black and white and a couple of movies <laughs> in color, <laughs> so just straight up like feels like another movie just dropped in, but you can just tell that the filmmaking, this style, is the one, the German movie is very flat. It feels like you're watching a crappy play. And what's amazing is, so the first scene of the movie is like this intense conversation with this couple, and you're watching it being like, man, this feels like a really shitty play. But then twist, it is a really shitty play. And then you're like, you go back and you see the audience, like you see the director be like, cut, 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 cut. And then basically the lady like can't go forward with like the sex scene that this play is asking for. And then the, what I can, for what I can tell, the plot of the movie is people telling this lady different stories of time of when women were more comfortable having sex and she should just get comfortable and just like deal with this play. Like, don't be, don't have all these hangups lady. Here's a story about like ancient Rome where these people were comfortable with their bodies and like, you shouldn't have any shame and just, just have the sex scene with this dude in this play. Is that right? Is that kind of what the German movie seems that to be? That is about? exactly what it is. <laughs> and then the Coppola stuff that was added was some post Jerry Lewis bellboy sort of like, here's this weird little like, you know, like gopher worker guy on the sidelines who's like, hey, he talks to the camera and he's like, hey, man, like, wonder if they're going to work out this situation, this play. Like, he helps with the play being like a stagehand, I think. But then he's also a bellboy at a hotel. It is not, it's really unrelated to this other movie. And then you get a lot of color footage of him doing this like lame, like not even really quite slapstick in a hotel where he's trying to get into this room and he's convinced that this room is full of like prostitutes or something like that. And he's going to thwart them and like figure out like what they're doing and stop what they're doing. And it's just an excuse for him to like stumble through a doorway and there's a bunch of women in their pajamas or negligee. And he's just like, oh, I must cover my eyes. Oh no. And that's the move. That's the movie. <laughs> That's the whole movie. Like, uh, he pretends to be, like, some big shot at the end. And um, then the real big shot shows up. And then everyone, like, beats him up, basically. They dogpile on him. And then it's like, oh, what a life. Wah-wah kind of ending. Um, yeah, this is not good by any stretch <laughs> but this is uh you know these are all exploitation films yeah. so you'd have movie theaters drive-in movie theaters low rent run down movie theaters they just need something to show they just need something to show if it had sex in it if it had like a monster in it they could get people into their theater so it doesn't it didn't matter. This is pre-cable TV. This is pre-Netflix. Uh, pre-cable TV. Uh, you had the like pre-internet. You had to know somebody <laughs> that knew somebody that could get you like an eight millimeter reel <laughs> of like a stag film. And honestly, this movie I feel could get away with like a PG thirteen. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's so tame. The, the nudity. It's like it's so it's so innocent. It's just really it's just like oh I saw like her leg. Yeah. <laughs> the, the nudity in this movie is the women just like kind of milling around their hotel room. Some of them have tops and some of them don't. Um, it is like a movie that's like if you've never seen boobs before, it's like you just like need to find out what the nude female body looks like. It's like these are the kinds of movies you watch because that's about all they did. So really it's just good for 11-year-old boys is it girls who want to see boobs. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that the sad thing about pornography in general? I think that's the saddest thing uh, is that like 
the people who want it the most, the people who are the most excited to like learn about it are people under the age of 18. And then when you're young, you're like, oh man, I can't wait to be 18. I'm going to buy this movie. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go on this website. I'm going to unblock the thing. Like no adults will stop me. And then by the time you're 18, you can just have sex with people and you're not as interested in watching all this porn. So really it should be for teen, like teenagers to just be like, oh, I'm learning this exciting thing. And then once they're 18, they don't really need it anymore. Right? Yeah, that's about how it goes. (laughs) It seems like the most excited are the ones that it's the most forbidden for. Maybe if it wasn't forbidden, it wouldn't be as exciting. Yeah. Yeah, And this is pornography, like in the softest sense of the word. Like it's just naked (laughs) women. They're usually not even doing anything sexually. They're just like sitting around. It's like there's as if they have their clothes on. It's like, oh, they're just reading a book. They're just like having dinner. They're just like sitting around. Like they might as well be doing their taxes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I really like the the dub the dubbed voices are extra cartoony. There's one character he's like I don't know who who he is, but there's one character who sounds kind of like Doctor Nick from The Simpsons, and the, the voice doesn't really match what an actual person's voice in real life sounds like. And he just comes in, he's like, "Oh, hey, what's going on here?" <laughs> and I don't know why they hired that actor to do the voice of this guy. Maybe the he sounds, you know. Like a person, I don't know. It's it's really poorly dubbed, and supposedly the couple of stuff was filmed to be in three D. Yeah. So there's a lot of like someone bouncing a thing towards the camera. So like, but it's really crappy that even in three D, it's not shot well enough to be exciting. It's not like House of Wax or anything where they're really putting it in your face and like, ooh, oh, it's my face. Really, it's just like there's stuff in the foreground. It's not in the background. Doesn't this look cool in three D? It's a balloon. <laughs> yep. That's about it. There's one there's one gag in the movie that I did legit uh, find amusing. That was uh, that the bellboy, he wants to be the hotel detective. So he's reading a book called, like, How to Be a Detective and, like, Pick Up Women. And you see how he has a whole series of books, like, How to Be... A fireman and pick up women like how to be an astronomer and pick up women it's a complete set of like a dozen books i thought that was kind of funny and, and it's nice to think at least that german movies get a lot better after after this if this is what they're sending us in 1960 <laughs> in 10 years from that from then you get you got fassbender you got your herzog and even German sex comedies got a lot better because in the 70s you have the Schoolgirl Report movies, which are great. You have the Bavarian sex comedies of the 70s, which are some of the best exploitation movies of all time. It really is just like old men in Lederhosen trying to spy <laughs> on the farmer's daughter. And it's just it's just ridiculous tomfoolery. Uh, and it's just much more fun and not – like this movie is just boring, even with the new footage. It's just like it's just – how can anyone sit through this more than half of the movie? I don't even understand. Yeah. I can't either. Aside, like, aside from the fact that you know there's going to be naked ladies in it. So you just <laughs> keep on watching. Good enough. Yeah. The thing is, if that really is all that it took, why couldn't they just dub the movie? Why even shoot new footage? If they're like, there's nudity here. Or is it because the movie kind of feels... Like, clearly it was made a few years before 1961. Is that when this came out? It was, like, 61, something yeah. like that? 
They're like it feels sort of, and this is the problem I think with the Battle of the Elms. Somebody talk about it. It's like it clearly is not a movie of its time, so they had to add some new footage that make it feel like a movie of its time. I feel like that, and just something to liven it up, because that German movie about the play, it's not really interesting at all if you don't know the language, even if you dub just that story. There's not a lot going on there. <laughs> and movies about plays usually aren't very exciting, except for like Birdman. No. <laughs> you mean noise is off. <laughs> oh, okay. Noise is off is okay, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, is there anything else to say about that movie? Um, just that the, uh, the American investors wanted nudity in this movie so much that in a scene with like five or four women there was one girl who was uh she didn't she got cold feet and didn't want to do a nude scene she told Coppola like I'm 17 my parents will be really mad at me so he said all right fine just keep your bra on and then the producers got really really mad at him for not letting her be naked or for letting her be in the movie at all for not having not forcing her to be naked It's weird. You think that producers of pornography would be these classy, understanding fellows, yeah. but instead they're kind of creeps. <laughs> weird. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that takes us then to tonight for sure. The so, best of the three movies. I yeah, it it is definitely. Um, it's an hour long. That's why it's the best yeah. of the three it's movies. Like an hour and five <laughs> minutes. So Kobla then wrote. A movie called The Peeper about a guy just trying to see naked ladies. But of course, all these peeping movies, it's with the caveat of like, I think something suspicious is going on. Like, I think those people are communists or they're pornographers or they're something. And I have to go find out. Not like I'm going to go spy on these people that are definitely naked. Uh, So that was his story. And then... His friend, was, was it Jack Hill? Is that Jack Hill in the movie? Um, I don't know. Well, the, the second movie, the the Western. No, I don't know who this. made that movie. According to Coppola, from what I can tell, when I, I, watched, the, I watched the Inside the Actors Studio episode, huh. and he said, there's just some crappy movie that was like, given me. I don't know who made it. And they just told me to add like more stuff okay. around it. That movie, it's the longer of the two. There's more footage of that. And that's about a, this cowboy who's like so hard up out in the old West that he just starts imagining naked ladies popping up everywhere. So he's just out in the desert and then this cow, bam, turns into a totally naked lady. She's just kind of like standing there, like maybe moving a little. She's not like, not like doing the swim or, you know, dancing or anything. Uh, So he edited those two movies together, called it tonight for sure. And this is the only of the three movies where he's actually credited as the director. Is that yeah. true? Um, where he's like actually credited as Francis Coppola in the opening credits. Yes, I think it's a pseudonym. He definitely uses a pseudonym for Battle Beyond the Stars. I think he uses a pseudonym uh, for Bellboy and for Bellboy and so Playgirl as well. This is the only one where he's like, yeah, according sure, to my notes, credit for this. Um, the, it's it's movies movies like this are interesting to me. Like nudie, this is part of the nudie cutie genre. And the person who started that genre was the great Russ Meyer. So the first kind of naked movies 
were these ridiculous movies about nudist colonies and, and sunbathing groups, and like Doris Wishman did a few of them, and it was just like, no, no, this isn't porn, this is a documentary about this nudist colony, but it clearly was just like attractive actors and actresses hired to be at, in this in this park or whatever, like any actual nudist colony is not full of beautiful people, it's full, mostly full of just a bunch of dudes hoping to see women who aren't there, and they're usually kind of like dirty, gross, you know, hairy people. But this is like beautiful people and they're playing volleyball or they're just like sitting around and usually like the private parts are kind of covered. Like I'm holding the ball so like I'm kind of naked, but I'm not. It's like the scene in A Shot in the Dark when Peter Sells goes into his colony and he's holding like the, the, the right place in the right spot just so you don't see anything. Oh, yeah, done with much <laughs> more obvious effect in um, the Austin Powers movie. Exactly. And so those movies kind of ran their course and then Russ Meyer had this brilliant idea of like, no, no, you just you totally acknowledge that there's nudity. You totally acknowledge that this is the thing. And you just have it be this sort of really kind of feel-good, nice, breezy thing where this guy walks around and just, like, sees naked women. And so he did a immoral Mr. Tease, which was the first nudie cutie. And that movie is just about this guy who gets this magic pair of glasses where he can, like, see women naked underneath their clothes. And that's the movie. And it's just him, like, in a restaurant, and he orders a sandwich – and he puts the glasses on, and the waitress gives him the sandwich, is naked, gives him the sandwich. And that's the whole movie. And it has this sort of like, it's interesting because I feel like, I don't know if this is true, but in my mind, like Russ Meyer saw the films of Jacques Tati, saw like, like Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, and was like, I like that movie, but what if there was nudity in that movie? Wouldn't that be a better movie? <laughs> and that's what Immoral Mr. Tease feels like in his other movie, like, uh, uh, his, his other his early movies just kind of have that feel of like you just have this like guy walking around and there's slapstick, but it's not like Three Stooges slapstick. It's not like harsh slapstick. It's just more like oh, it's like a subtle slapstick. It's like a Tati esque slapstick, and you have this kind of nice saxophone music and every. There's nothing bad going on. There's no bad feelings. It's just this guy walking around like he looks through a window and there's a naked lady. And so that movie was Immoral Mr. Tease was so popular and made so much money that everybody was quick to, to to copy it and just make their own version of it. And there's so many movies that like this is like pre-hardcore pornography. This is pre where you were like you weren't allowed to show actual people having sex yet in a in a theater. That wasn't until late '60s, early '70s. So this is all you can get was like a lady with back to the camera, and you, you can tell she's naked, but you don't really see anything. And so they made so many of these movies, and Tonight for Sure is definitely trying to be like one of those movies. For sure, The Peeper. Because you have this guy who's just like, oh, I'm going to see what's my neighbor doing. I'm going to look through my telescope. Oh, my gosh, she's naked. Or, oh, we're these moral crusaders, and we're going to go to the strip club. I mean, I guess we got to sit here all day and watch all the, the burlesque acts to really know what we are angry about. And then you see the entire burlesque act. And it has this weird part where the – Guy's going through his hotel or his apartment, and there's like porn hidden underneath everything in his room. Where he's just like, <laughs> he turns this, like he t- opens the curtain and he's on his wall, and there's like everywhere, and it's just kind of driving him crazy. Uh, so not much plot in this movie. No, it really this- is just like here are these burlesque acts centered around this thin plot. No, this has this odd framing device of these two guys uh, meeting. August 1961, somewhere on the Sunset Strip, is text that appears at the beginning of the movie. You know, much like at the beginning of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. 
And these two guys meet at a burlesque club, and then they tell each other stories. And one guy tells the other the story of the peeper, and the other guy tells a story about the cowboy seeing naked ladies. And then occasionally they, like, take a break from their stories and watch a burlesque act. And that's the movie. I guess that framing device does tie together these two movies that have nothing to do with each other. (laughs) It is just weird that two guys met to then talk about the times when this other guy (laughs) saw naked ladies. While they're in a strip club where they could just shut up and watch the naked ladies. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, and what is that story... Like, what is that person telling the story even saying? Like, and then she was totally naked. Like, her (laughs) boobs were just out. She wasn't really doing anything. She was just kind of standing there in the wash basin. (laughs) Was she, like, touching herself? Like, no. (laughs) (laughs) It is amazing that this is, like, the start of the man who went on to make some of the greatest films. To make of like all time. Yeah. Ten years later. Like not even that much. Like ten years is not a lot of time. When you think of like ten years ago and ten years between jobs, like ten years between movies, like they go from this to, to the Godfather. The God literally the Godfather. Seventy two, yeah. Is crazy. Ten years after this, it's sixty two. Because like you would never think <clears throat> because like these three movies, there's nothing here that I really think shows a true talent. It's like a, there's a capability of each other. Like, yes, you know how to make the basics. Uh, like, you know how what a movie is made of. But there's nothing here of like, ooh, wow. Like, you really, you really snuck in something there. Like, yeah, you got hired to do these hack jobs, but man, you really snuck in something really special there. Uh, which, you know, is surpri- a little surprising to me because like he seems like he's always been an experimental filmmaker in a way. And it's weird that he didn't try to do more interesting stuff in these three movies. Kind of like maybe he just felt like I need to just like play good here to get my foot in the door, which may, is kind of what it feels like. Because, I mean, he is, um, he is still a young college kid. Like he is still attending USC while he's making these movies – or UCLA? UCLA while making these movies. So like that's a big deal, even if you are making this like – no no artistic quality at all nudie film like you're still you still have a camera and a crew and you're working with a you know an editor and there's your name on the credits and it's a movie that played in theaters like i have to assume just like the novelty of that you know that he was the one from like his class at usc ucla ucla there's a lot of UCs out there <laughs> at UCLA that was that actually got a break, like of all the film students, and this was like the first kind of first generation of film students because um, film had was just now starting to be taught seriously at colleges, both uh, criticism wise and production wise. And I wonder what his fellow uh, students thought about him making these kind of trashy, naked things. If they were like, you're better than that. It's like, why are you doing this? Like, you're selling it out there. This is gross. Uh, from what I read, there was a lot of jealousy, of course. But there was jealousy even um, before he started making these movies, just when he was making the student films that got all the attention. 
like other classmates were like, like, you know, who's this guy? Like, <laughs> this movie, it's the, the, bur the burlesque stuff in this and uh, some of the stuff that, that, that you get in Bill on the Playgirls, it has sort of like, it is very innocent and it's sort of clumsy. There's nothing sexy about really anything in either of these movies. There's nothing, at least for 21st century eyes, would be very thrilling to anybody. Yeah, again, just like you, you have not seen a naked female body before, so you need to find out what it looks like. And that, it, that's what this movie delivers. And the club and the burlesque stuff in Tonight for Sure kind of reminded me of Killing of a Chinese Bookie, that kind of sad play environment that like Ben Gazzara works at in that movie, where you're sort of like, yeah, you know, everyone seems nice enough, but just kind of, this is sort of like, it's almost like, you know, like a basic theater troupe in a way, or just sort of like you just show up and you, just, you have, don't really have a plan of what you're doing. You're just going to do some dance. You kind of have maybe a theme with some prop on the stage or some costume, but you don't, your heart doesn't seem quite in it, but like it seems like you wish that you were, you know, in a better place <laughs> than this place. The, um, uh, the premise of this movie, I mean, the story device of the two guys talking to each other reminded me of. Uh, is it behind the green door, which is also which also has the device of someone telling a story to other people. <laughs> that movie starts out with an intensely long driving scene, like it was straight out of like Birdemic, just like driving, driving, <laughs> driving, driving, driving. This guy gets to this place where there are like a it's a restaurant where there are a lot of chairs. There are so many empty chairs in this place. And there's only like four guys. And the guy that owns the place is like, hey, why don't you tell him the story about the green door? <laughs> and then he tells a story that then is the rest of this, you know, groundbreaking pornographic <laughs> film, which one, like, that is not the story he tells. You wouldn't call that the story about the green door. <laughs> there's a story about how Marilyn Chambers had sex with everybody in that one room. Yeah. One so what you're saying is Woody Allen ripped off that movie for Broadway Danny Rose. Broadway Danny Rose is just a ripoff of Behind the Green Door, which is just a ripoff of Tonight for Sure. Sure. <laughs> bunch of guys. And for, is it Forget Paris, a ripoff of Broadway Danny Rose? It's also a bunch of people sitting around talking, right? Isn't that what that movie is, too? I think Forget Paris stands out. <laughs> Really, I, I think Forget Paris is a good movie. It's I, good. It's good. It's, Coppola really has truly inspired. I'm, I stand corrected. He has made a mark with this movie. Um, this this uh, Coppola does begin and end with this device, though. There are a lot of movies before this from the 40s and 50s where it starts out with one person telling another person a story. And then the movie just ends with the story. You never go back to the people telling the story. Well, they're just like, where are they? They're, they're, like, they're like, and that's the end of the story, or they pay their tab. Like, that's not a fun ending. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about Battle Beyond the Sun. Yeah, so then uh, the head of the US, UCLA, UCLA <laughs> uh, film department gets a call from Roger Corman Hey, do you have anybody really talented that can help me out on projects? And you think unpaid intern? You think it's like a Terrence Malick thing where it's like, hey, college kid, yeah, help me with that movie. I won't pay you a dime. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, and the head of the of the department says, absolutely, I do. There's one guy that's already made two movies technically, so she gives him she gives Corman Francis Ford Coppola 
and he put Scopla to work on Battle Beyond the Sun. The plot of this was very convoluted, and I didn't quite understand exactly <clears throat> what's going on. <laughs> it's basically, <laughs> oh, you know, this movie is basically um, like that Roger Altman, not, that's not a person, Robert <laughs> Altman movie, Countdown. It's basically the same thing. Um, it's about astronauts, like, who's going to be the first to the moon. Um, someone, the Russians get there first, but then the U.S. is in trouble, so then the Russians go and help the U.S. because they're, you know, such good guys. This movie's made by Russia, by the yes. way. <laughs> and basically the same thing happens in Countdown. I've never seen Countdown. Um, it's not very good. It's probably the least Altman-y. Altman movie I've seen where you're like no one's talking over each other, the camera doesn't move a lot, it's that's, really boring. That's like late sixties Altman. That's like pre yeah. mash, pre all that. Oh yeah, definitely pre pre like the Robert Altman years. Pre pop <coughs> pre OC and sticks. <laughs> so yeah, that's the plot of this movie. Soviets, they uh, race into the moon, they get there first. Americans also get there, but then once they get to the moon, there are these monsters that look like genitalia. <laughs> and that part was filmed by uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Jack. Yeah, Hill. Corman told him to add in some monsters so he could sell it as like a drive-in thriller and make them look kind of like genitals. So, so it was intentional that yes. they because they definitely do look like a female and a male yes. part. Corman said make them like subtly look like genitals. And then, and then Coppola made them look really like. <laughs> but why? Genitals. What is the reason? I to really push the envelope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no real good reason for it. <laughs> they could just be monsters. And I feel like out of the three movies, this has the least amount of Coppola stuff. Because it seemed yeah. like you had a full feature to work with here, and it definitely seems like it's most of what you're seeing is that Russian movie. And that Russian movie definitely feels like before its time. Like, this is was released in, what, 60? Uh, 62. 62? Yeah. But the, the bulk of it feels like a 50s science fiction movie. It doesn't feel like a 60s science fiction movie. Feel, this feels like a, like, this island Earth, forbidden planet, like, destination move level sci-fi movie and not, like, because like, by the time you're in the 60s, you act, honestly, are through the Cormor stuff where you're starting to get, like, the giant monsters and ants and you're getting into that kind of sci-fi so this sort of like paper mache rocket going through like oh in front of the black velvet you know with yeah. the holes punched punched in it that's more of a fifties sci fi that's not really wouldn't really fly in nineteen sixty uh, two so maybe that's why you need a genitals monster to really update it for the the beatniks yeah because by sixty two <laughs> you've already had men going go into space. Uh, in the 50s. And dogs go into space. Dogs go into space. They tragically. come back, unfortunately, but you know. Damn Russians. <laughs> we brought that monkey back. Sure, he came back super smart and had to be hidden away in the lab. Is that true? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's a Simpsons episode. And then, Is that how the plan of the apes starts? They, they know more than we do. They come back, take over <laughs> the world. Um, the models in this movie look like models. There's nothing that passes for an actual thing of actual size. I thought it was a scene of a model. I didn't know it was supposed <laughs> to be. You thought it was going to zoom out spaceship. and show the scientists being like, and that's where we're going to take our ship. He's like, no, nope, <laughs> yeah. that's the ship. That's the space station. Yeah, this one yeah. is it. Uh, it is the most 
uh, mystery science theater level bad. Like, I can't believe MST3K didn't right? riff this movie. That is weird, because, like, the, the crappy DVDs, I'm sure, made it seem like it's in public domain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it seems like anyone should be able to just make fun of this movie. Um, and in the opening credits, Coppola is accredited as associate producer only. That's the only actual credit that he has. Yeah, he directs under the pseudonym Thomas Colhart. Oh, man, way to betray his Italian ancestry, yeah. Thomas Colhart. And his father, Carmine Coppola, who later makes great music for his movies, does the soundtrack here, but he's listed as Carmen, C-A-R-M-E-N Coppola. So that so Carmen Coppola is the is the composer for the music for this film. Uh, and Coppola associate producer. Uh, this movie takes place on November 7th. 1997. I looked up that day. What important thing happened on that day? The only thing that I could find was, well, the Mr. Bean movie was out that day. <laughs> what, were, what were you doing November 7th, 1997? I was looking forward to seeing Boogie Nights and Jackie Brown. I think those both were going to come out a month, like a month later. Uh, I was 10th probably... grade, I think. 97. I was maybe in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. I was in middle school. I was probably just like living the the high off of seeing the re-releases of the Star Wars movies. Oh, that years. was that time. I was living off the high of really being into the Spice Girls, which was 1997. That was 97, yeah. Uh, I, um, I did time. not get to appreciate the wonderfulness that is Spice World until just a few years ago. <laughs> until you're like, yes. Until I was like, I'm over being like a snotty 13-year-old boy. Like, Ooh, great. I can't listen or watch anything with music about girls. Richard E. Grant is very good in that movie. That movie is great, yeah. That movie is great. That is the closest thing to A Hard Day's Night as any movie has ever come since A Hard Day's Night. Uh, and there's a doctor in this movie named Dr. Ruth Gordon. <laughs> there is. Uh, but this is before anyone really cared too much about the actress Ruth Gordon, who was in uh, Harold and Maude, because she didn't really become too famous until she was older. But there's someone named Ruth Gordon in this movie. Uh, the narrate there's a heck of a lot of exposition in this movie, probably because the movie was in Russian, and it the, sure stays undubbing just to have some dude talk over the scene just explaining yes, Coppola, what's going on. It, it, it was the classic thing, and like Corman had to know that Coppola was not telling the truth. Uh, he asked Coppola, like, this movie's in Russian. Can you, you speak Russian? Can you translate it so we can have a scripted dub? And he said, yes, I speak Russian. <laughs> and just made some stuff up. You know, whatever it takes to get, you know, to get. And because it's Corman. He, he really doesn't care that much. And that's where. <laughs> the movie does at the end of the day. Is the movie done? Movie? Make two more movies. <laughs> this movie has some great. Uh, moments. There's a guy who walks out on the space station without <laughs> flying in outer space. He's not really tied to anything. He just kind of walks outside. He is wearing a space suit, at least. But as far as I can tell, he's not really attached to much. He's just sort of just kind of like walking around. And uh, there's these weird red suits they make with like like big front pockets, and there's like one button on the top. And then when they're waiting for fuel. They kind of just have, like, they're just, like, hanging out. Like, they're just kind of having this weird, like, just hangout thing where they don't really feel like astronauts. They just feel like a bunch of guys hanging out. Like, 
and they just put on ties and stuff. Like, ah, oh, we're just gonna put on our nice, you know, spacesuits. And everyone in this movie clearly is Russian. They look so Russian. They have the big, bushy eyebrows and the big foreheads, and they just look like, like stereotypical. They look like Bond villains, but they're all good guys. But they they, they don't look like yeah. Americans. What's like not early sixties Americans whatsoever. They're not passing it well. Like not at all. <laughs> and big complaint. They don't really go beyond the sun, and there's no real battle. Really. That is, that is <laughs> my final all capital all capital letters note is what battle question mark question mark. There is no battle. The Russians and Americans do not fight when they get to the moon. They don't really fight with the monsters. They like see the monsters and they're like, oh, there's monsters, and they watch the monsters fight with each other. And by fighting, they kind of just like stand in front of each other and go like, you know, they just kind of like lurch around. Uh, and then they go back in their ships. And yeah, they, they're trying to go to the moon or to Mars. I don't I don't care. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know we're doing a podcast. If it was actually Mars we're going to and I've been saying the moon, I'm sorry. You know, there's some podcasts that are incredibly well researched and feel like an NPR show. And then there's this one. And that's fine. You can have both. You can yeah. <laughs> this is to kill time while you're at your, you know, cubicle job. You got your earbuds in. We're just here to help you through whatever yes, you've already report to, you're trying. You listen to all the good stuff. You listen to Pop Culture Happy Hour, <laughs> and now you're into these jackasses. Yeah, you listen to every Captain Marvel podcast. <laughs> um, no battle. They don't go beyond the sun. No battle. My uh, <laughs> my favorite part of this movie, though. The best part of this movie is there. there's this thing these astronauts have to do when they're, like, standing in their spaceship and they're like, oh, like, blah, 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 blah. Like, all right, then we have to do this. Okay, recline. And then they lay down in their chairs, and their chairs very slowly go from sitting position to a flat reclining position extremely slowly. And we're <laughs> watching it like it's supposed to be riveting. And the way they say, recline! <laughs> And then they very slowly, <laughs> very, very slowly recline. And they do it a lot. <laughs> the the thing that was most exciting to me about this was the DVD trailers. I don't know if you actually – did you watch? I did. I watched the a DVD. I, my, they are the, – I want to – I wrote down every title of all of them. They all look I did so too. good. The one – Death of Poe, I have written, <laughs> holy shit, campy as fuck. <laughs> There's that. So there's this guy named Mark Redfield who's in most of these trailers. I don't know who he is. I don't know why this DVD company said, like, let's just put Mark Redfield trailers. So there's this, there's this Poe thing. There's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde movie that he's in. There's a movie called Cold Harbor that looks like some sort of like family drama. But it looks very roomish. It looks like the room. Oh, yeah. That's uh, the one. It looks closest to like... Hey, why haven't I heard about this movie? <laughs> like, it, it almost feels like it's a real movie. And then there's Terror in the Tropics, which looks like a Lost Skeletons of Cadavera sort of thing. And then the, the, the one that is really exciting looking is called Despiser. And it's just like this terrible CG monster. Like, they're in like almost like a Sin City landscape sort of like green screen nightmare. Very exciting. <laughs> so I think we'll definitely, when we're done with Coppola, do a Mark Redfield 
podcast and go through the, the bulk of his uh, of his work. If uh, uh, yeah, and then Dave the Roth Nelson. Oh man, well Dave the Roth Nelson definitely. Uh, he's still around. He can still make twenty, thirty more movies. All right, so we, we should uh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> wait. Um, um, so that's kind of it. I think like the lesson learned here is that anyone can be a great filmmaker if you really work hard. Because like this should give you inspiration. If you're like, oh man, like. I just have my phone. I just made a crappy movie with my friends. Like, I really would like to make something better than this someday. You can. Ten years later, this dude made The Goddamn Godfather, which is slowly inching its way towards being considered the greatest film of all time. Like, it's been consistent. came for a while. It's been replaced by Vertigo. And now The Godfather's kind of slowly getting getting up there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Made that. Made Apocalypse Now. Like... This man made some of the great films of all time. Was like he is a, an important filmmaker, and he started with this garbage, <laughs> and it means that you too can become a great filmmaker. And no matter what, the real takeaway I got from this is that you gotta start somewhere. You know, everyone's gotta start somewhere, and he started with these nudie films and this like you know, terrible re-edit of a really bad Russian space movie. And, and then was... went on to make, you know, some of the most prestigious movies uh, ever. And, and and that's interesting because, like, you see other filmmakers before this, like pre-film school generation, and, you know, they, they the movies still feel real from the beginning. Like, you have Hitchcock, and, yeah, he has, like, a some movies that aren't as cinematic as his latest stuff, but they still are, like, for the time... Fitted with the other Hollywood movies, and like you know, William Wellman and all these people, like Arson Wells, Billy Wilder, like they start in a like these movies feel like real movies, and now you have this whole exploitation genre, and you can actually like come out of it. And then, most of the people work for Roger Corman, they all ended up being great filmmakers, like Scorsese, Bogdanovich, like all these people started in this world and got out of it, and like that's a thing. That can happen. That doesn't even still happen now. I feel like you don't see someone who did like a sharktopus or like giant CG crocodile so would then become an award-winning. No, like, what's the last person to kind of start in that kind of area and get to like, no, you're great. You just had to start somewhere, and then you made your way to like you started in a shot of video thing, but then you became like Paul Thomas Anderson. His the Dirk Diggler story, which I've seen. It's just a terrible shot on video with your friend's movie. It is not a real movie. And now he's, you know, he's like the Stanley Kubrick of our time. And like, even I completely Tar- agree with that right? statement. And then Tarantino made my best friend's birthday. Didn't even finish it. Not very good from what I've seen. And he ended up, he also is a great filmmaker. So like, there are people that can start small. I think now how it works is you make your short film and you get in the festivals and then you get to make a Marvel or Star Wars or Jurassic That's World. it. I feel like now it's like the Coppola and the Corman, the Corman uh, school of guys. They made their silly, ridiculous movies. They're like, ah, I'm kind of ashamed of, but not really. And then they went on to make their, their serious, legit films. But now it's happening backwards where someone's first debut movie is this really you know earnest well-crafted indie drama or indie comedy and then your next movie hey guess what you're directing jurassic park (laughs) five and it's gonna here's your eight billion dollar budget 
is like, but I only know how to make a movie with one camera and, you know, one professional actor and the rest of everyone was my friends. Like, ah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. We'll boss you around and tell you what to do. And that's why we want you to do this in the first place. And I guess, like, there really isn't exploitation in this way anymore. Like, now the big budget movies are the exploitation movies. <laughs> like, there isn't really, like, what are the crappy little movies that they can get your start on and work your way up and learn how to do like his classic Hollywood system was like, well, first you start here, then start you start work. working on the B pictures, and then and then you then you're the assistant director, and now you're this, now you're the director, and you work your way up, you know, like you were this, and now you're this, and then you had this film school era where it's like you start in the exploitation world, kid, and then you work your way up to like the low budget, like personal movie, and then you get to do the bigger movie, and then. After that, you had like the music video generation, which like, okay, David Fincher, you direct all these Madonna videos, or whatever, and then we'll give you Alien Three because we know that you can, like, you're capable of making a thing, and then you get to make the movie you want to make, you know. And now it just feels like it's like they make the movie they want to make first, first, and then they just blow it and make. It's like, and now you're making the Halloween remake, and you used to have humble beginnings, and now you're making the like you made Safety Not Guaranteed, and now you're just making some bloated garbage. Yeah. And it's just kind of sad. I feel like people's really true uh, indie films are now just sort of like resumes, business cards, in the hopes that they'll make this giant sellout movie. And if the movie does well, thumbs up, great. Then you can just keep making these big movies. But if it doesn't do well, then you're like the Fantastic Four guy where you're just kind of like, well, <laughs> too bad for you, guy. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, it's just kind of sad. Like I wish there was filmmakers that just stayed indie in a way, or work their way up. Like, it just sounds like an old man on the porch, like, complaining. But, like, like look at, like, the career of, like, an Alexander Payne, where it's, like, he kind of made a smaller movie, then made a little bit of bigger movie, then made a little bit of bigger movie, just kind of slowly worked his way up, but still is kind of staying true to his vision of what he wants to do as a filmmaker. And now everybody's just so quick to take that, like, oh, I could do a Marvel movie. Oh, I got to do the Marvel movie. Oh, my gosh. Like, oh, I could do a Disney movie. Oh, my gosh, I will do that. And, like, the only person who's been able to go back and forth is that David Lowry guy who did um, the Pete's Dragon. Pete's Dragon, but then he went back and did that ghost story thing, and he's able to kind of go up and down, uh, which is kind of what you – I think that's what a filmmaker should do. You should do the Linklater Soderbergh thing where you make your little movie. Ooh, they're letting me do Out of Sight. Oh, cool. Like, oh, now I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to do the limey. with a little small. And it's like you kind of like that up and down. It's like, and it's hard. I think it's a hard thing to do. I think it's so easy to be like – yeah, I just want a bunch of money. It's, I don't want to work so hard. It's just easier to sit on the set and let a lot of people do all the work. And, and why do I want to go back to make some small thing, you know? See, it sounds like an old man complaining on the porch. This is just me complaining <laughs> about, like, independent film is dead. That's what I'm trying to say. It's, uh, it's dead. Sundance is just the job interview to make your uh, Hollywood film. Basically, yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, like two. Can we have like you know two or three solid, entertaining indie to mid budget movies anymore? Well, there was a time when that happened. When filmmakers worked their way up (laughs) from the from the bottom, kid, from nudie pictures to B pictures (laughs) to the Godfather to the Godfather. (laughs) And maybe it is because of these streaming things, there isn't a way to make money anymore off these small movies, and you have to make the big movie to actually have a living. I don't know. I don't know a lot about the biz. 
But I feel like this is a nice, humble beginning for Coppola, and it's just, it's it's endearing to see to picture him like this, making these stupid little things to try to get his foot in the door in the hopes that he's gonna make his next movie. And then the next movie we do is sort of a continuation of this in a way, but a much more interesting thing. We're gonna do the Terror next, and there's a whole bunch of stuff about that movie and a whole lot of careers that came out of that movie. And that is very exciting. To yes, he is one of many directors on the famous Roger Corman film, The Terror. It's a film that just won't die. Like it's <laughs> always around, man. And then he did one more Corman film, Dementia Thirteen, and uh, the first true Coppola movie. Yes, and that'll be the episode after the next. Yeah, episode. and that'll uh, and that'll end the early Roger Corman chapter. Um, yeah, this was a uh, an odd beginning. Very to so. uh, a very, very notable career. You wouldn't expect going back to like that uh, this filmmaker's career would start this way with these movies when you go back. <laughs> like, oh man, what is Shyamalan's first movie? Like, it's oh, a well, personal this... journey. It's a personal movie. Yeah, it's a personal journey that he like saved up money and he made it himself. And you're like, oh yeah, I can see how, you know, that... The guy that made that movie grew in to the guy that made The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. I can't see yet how the guy that made these movies or worked on these movies grew into, you know, the guy behind The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a fun, We're gonna wild, find out. wild thing. I feel this is more of a fun uh, mystery journey than the Shyamalan one. I think so because Coppola is a—it's a very diverse, odd filmography. Definitely. All right. Well, we hope you had fun, and we hope you continue to have fun with us and with the Coppola wine. What do you think of this wine? I think it's good. Uh, my knowledge of wine extends to good and bad, and hey, I like that, which means that it's really fruity. Uh, <laughs> this is good. It is very good. It's very easy to drink. It's very. The, the term they use, I think, bold. This is a bold red. Mm, bold. Robust, I think, when they say on the back of the bottle, it's robust. Uh, it probably, yeah, uh, it has legs. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's a wine thing. We'll have to rewatch Sideways <laughs> uh, so we can know how to talk about wine. Wonderful wine. So, Coppola, please send us a case of your wine if you're listening. Please do. We're funding your next movie <laughs> by buying your wine. All right, so... Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Directors Wall. Uh, you can email us, directorswall at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, rate and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And thanks for listening. We will see you next time at the Exploitation Drive-In. Hooray! Right.